Hey kids, welcome back to Onstage Offstage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this week and next is going to be two of our ever so often play readings. This week we are reading the play Timeshare by Judy Class. By the way, the theme for this week and next week is Old Acquaintance. Yeah, considering it's uh, December, it's the New Year's, it's that time of year when we start reflecting on what we've done, what we hope to accomplish. This seems like a time for plays that exhibit a little bit of remembrance of people we miss or may not miss. Anyway, Judy Class, her play is Timeshare. The cast of characters, Nancy, played by Paige Anderson. Unpretentious, smart, good sense of humor, sometimes simultaneously amused and annoyed by Rob, which leads us to Rob, who is played by Michael Donato. Sardonic, charming, ultimately a pretty good guy. The scene, an almost empty bar room. The time, the present. When the play opens up, Nancy sits at the bar, sipping a beer. Rob enters this part of the bar, beer in hand, stares at her a moment, then approaches. Hey. Hey. I didn't see you come in. I've been sitting over there. Your favorite booth. Yeah. I didn't think you'd be in here this early. I had the same thought about you. I guess that's why I'm here. Oh. And I guess that's why you're here also, right? You were looking for a little peace and quiet. I haven't been here for a while, actually. I know. Not for ten days. How do you know that? I have been here. Every night? A few. Blair scopes the place out for me and texts me that you're not here, and so sometimes I stop by. But this is Friday night. I figured you'd be coming in later. Oh, that's great. You're using Blair as a spy to look out for me. Not a spy, a scout. She's on Buzzkill Patrol. Buzzkill Patrol. That's cute. Thank you. So, listen. This is crazy. I mean... I feel afraid to come hang out with my friends now, in, in my favorite bar. Um, yes, I'm aware that it's your favorite, Rob. Obviously. And these friends are mutual. Not if you've got Blair reporting on whether I'm here. Like, like uh, I'm the uh, Ebola virus. Oh, because you and Blair were always so close. We have friends in common. Are they all part of your buzzkill brigade? Just Blair, whom I've known since high school. And, by the way, thanks for telling Archer what I said about him. What I told you in confidence, back when I thought I could trust you. Hey, you trash talk a friend of mine, I figure he might as well know about I it. I did not trash talk him. I told you, privately, that he should stay away from the Jägermeister. Because he's an ugly drunk. No, you're an ugly drunk. He's a silly drunk. He just gets a little bit too hilarious. Everything is hilarious to him, and he hoots and snorts, and it can get messy. But I'm fond of him. I like him. Or I liked him. We were friends, and I don't need you sabotaging him with me. Oh, come on. You never hang out with him and his crowd. Like I'm... you hang out with Blair. Fine. Fine. So, listen. Nancy. I think it's actually a lucky thing, us running into each other like this. With nobody around. Lucky how? It gives us a chance to maybe um, negotiate a... Timeshare arrangement. Timeshare arrangement? You've got a condo in Florida you want me to take for a week every spring? No. The bar. I mean, 
It's my favorite bar. Mine too. Hello. I was coming here long before you were. Well, before we got together. No, before you even came here. How do you know? Because I'd have remembered you. Well, thank you. But that's my point. We both like this place, so why ruin it for each other? We try to guess. Is the other person going to be there at this hour or have a spy texting you? So you're suggesting... Give me Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And you take Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. What if I don't feel like coming here every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday? Then neither of us is here. That's better. We're each out doing productive things instead of adding to our beer guts. Speak for yourself. Look, I'll... I'll tell Archer I misspoke. It was, it was right after our breakup, after the phone call from hell. I was mad at you. I'll say I exaggerated. You said he gets wacky when he drinks Jägermeister, and I blew it out of proportion. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. And you tell Blair and her fellow harpies... Can I say that you called them harpies? You tell them we're cool. There's no need to watch for me and warn you. We've, we've worked this out like mature adults. With our timeshare plan. Yeah. Why do I get stuck with Saturday night? I go to church sometimes. You don't. Do you know what Sunday morning is like in the pew with a hangover? It's like an old Chris Christopherson song sung by Johnny Cash. Oh, uh, listen. Uh, there are shows I like to watch on Wednesday there night. There are shows I... you like to watch every night. You're the typical all-American grown man. You like to watch cartoon shows. But I'm willing to have Wednesday be one of my nights. Big sacrifice. Look, I really like to go out on Friday night. I get off work. I'm pumped. I want to see my friends. Me too. Well, maybe we can alternate Fridays and Saturdays. That could get complicated. You're going to have to send me a calendar or a way to keep track. I'm sure there's an app for that. Timeshare. That's actually a brilliant solution to this annoying problem that has been spoiling my evenings for, like, months. Thank you. Because we went, when we bump into each other here... It's bad. It's not good. This chill goes through the room. I feel sorry for our friends, you know? They feel they have to take sides. It's, it's like a freaking custody battle. I know. Except like Chris and, D and Dixon, they never liked me in the first place. They're happy to snub me whether you're here or not. <laughs> or Blair and the Harpies. Same deal. So, when did you come up with this concept? Last week. I was uh, debating calling you or writing. I got the idea off of Animal Planet. Animal planet? Because animals do it. Do what? Timeshare? Yeah. Cats do it. They, they, they each get a certain hour of the day to patrol each other's backyard, and they usually respect each other's schedules. And, and if one cat barges in on another cat's timeshare... Major cat fight. Right. And since I saw that, I've been observing Tigger, and I think there's something to it. He likes to go out at 10 p.m., and, and that black cat... He's always in the backyard a couple of hours earlier or, or sitting in the neighbor's boat. They still have that boat in the backyard? And it's still a big hit with all the cats. They all want to play captain on the high seas. How is Tigger? He's good. Oh, he sends his regards. He actually misses you. Yeah? 
You groomed him more carefully than I do, I guess. Or maybe he was just more okay with you manhandling him. Well, he's a good cat. Tell him I said hello. Definitely. So, you look good. Are you seeing anyone? Rob. Uh, look, how is that inappropriate? I, I just ran into an old friend, and now we've negotiated a major deal. No, I am not seeing anyone. You? Well, as a matter of fact, no one. Nobody whatsoever. Oh. Well? Uh, but, uh, see, there's this bar I like to hang out in with friends and all. So that convinces me I have a life. I know the feeling. It's not quite the way it was before, though. I, I mean, even on the timeshare plan, it won't be like the way it was when, even before we really got together, when, when I'd see you here and tease you and mess with you, and you'd always have some smart-ass response. Well, I mean, you can be kind of a dick when you think you're just teasing somebody. That's right. I'm an ugly drunk. Even before you get drunk, you can be the annoying kid brother from hell. But I know what you mean about when it was good, before it got too intense. Hmm. I guess those are my happiest associations with this place, when I was just meeting you and we were hanging out with everyone. Hmm. So, you want to go back to my place? What? You, you can give Tigger his can of Fancy Feast. And then you can groom him properly. He, he's looking kind of mean. You're propositioning me now? You ruined my life? You ruined this place for right, me? Right, but we just cleared all that up. With our timeshare plan. Which still works for me. This can be a seedy, sad, one-night stand sort of thing. Well, thanks so much. But I happen to think there is nothing more pathetic and dysfunctional than breakup sex. It would not be breakup sex. We're completely estranged. Well, that's even more dysfunctional. It's exciting. It's uncharted territory. Every evening, every time I think of this place, I'm so angry. I want to rip your head off. I miss you too. This is exactly the kind of thing you pull... Just when everything seems sane and... It is. But just think. If we leave now before anybody we know shows up, they don't have to find out about it. We can still officially hate each other and go with the timeshare. That's ridiculous. Well, yeah, but... Are but... you parked in the back lot? No. Up the street. Okay. Fine, let's go. But no one would believe this. I don't believe it myself. It's probably another Christofferson song that's sung by Johnny Cash. They don't let songs this messed up on the radio. Well, bars are for self-destructive behavior. Hmm. And it is Friday night. <laughs> the exit. End of play. That was the play Timeshare by Judy Class. We caught up with Judy a couple of days after we recorded this. Got her on Skype and uh, wanted to find out where exactly this play came from. Timeshare. Great little play. Loved it. We had a ball recording it. Um, 
Everybody everybody had a, a great time with it. They love the characters. The characters are sharp. The characters are smart. Um, the characters are unbelievably honest with each other, which uh, doesn't always happen in a post-relationship situation. Um, okay, where did this uh, play come from? Where did the idea come from? Did something like this actually happen to you? Um, well, I've certainly dealt with the fallout of relationships where you both, you know, have a lot of anger towards the person, miss the person, sort of switch gears in an instant. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a stranger to that. Uh, a lot of my plays, I see a call for, a, for a, I see a contest and I write a play to enter the contest and it doesn't win the contest and then something else interesting happens with it. So I'm trying to think of if I wrote Timeshare because I saw a call for plays set in a bar. I think I'm, that might have been the case. Um, and it didn't win, and then it sets readings, and you know, and and that's all good. It, it just somebody gives you an idea, and you're glad you had the idea to write the play. There, there have been a bunch of again. I, I live in Nashville, and there have been a bunch of sort of country songs with the theme of you're a buzzkill, you come into the bar, you ruin it for me, or videos where sort of someone's, you know, we live in such a small town, it's it's hard to live here post breakup kind of thing. And I thought, you know, I think that's not a bad idea for a 10 minute play to sort of tell that kind of a story. So I think that's what may have led to me writing the play. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the characters. It's, we had such a great time with them. We really, really liked them. Uh, are they based on anybody? Why are they so fair with each other? I mean, I think they're, they're honest people. They obviously both have flaws, but I would like people to like them. And so their candor is maybe something in their favor and they know each other very well. So they'd be, They'd feel ridiculous, you know, and, and they have been playing these elaborate games where they've been trying to avoid each other at the bar and come at weird hours, have someone scope the bar out. So it, it, it's almost as if they see each other alone and, and they take advantage of the opportunity to clear the air. Um, I gave them both a sense of humor and I didn't give them exactly the same approach. They're obviously different. Uh, yeah, I probably drew on myself, uh, people I know, various dysfunctional relationships I've been in, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, mm. I say? <laughs> uh, do you think that most past relationships are dysfunctional? Um, well, I mean, I think we're we're in an age where a lot of people would like to stay friends after a relationship, and and sometimes that's possible, and sometimes it's not. But it 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 does present a lot of of interesting problems, and so it's it's just it's just a play of two people navigating that, the the incredible ambivalence after a breakup. Incredible ambivalence. I like that. So you mentioned uh, there's a descriptive in there, which I'm not quite sure all of all of my listeners are going to get. And I, I kind of get it. But uh, you were talking about Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson. Now, yep. a lot of people know Johnny Cash. He's been more popular, I think, after his death uh, in retrospect than he was probably before it. Uh, but Chris Christopherson has always, he seemed to have had a, a high point way, way back in the dim dark ages and hasn't been heard much from since. Why, where did this uh, Johnny Cash song sung by Chris Christopherson line come from and why that? Um, again, I'm, I'm from New York. I live in Nashville now. My life has had a strange trajectory. I've always liked country music. So where I live, people actually like talk about Chris Christopherson. That's not that obscure at a reference point now. So um, if, if, if I go back home, then, you know, people would be like, what are you talking about maybe? But, uh, you know, because 
Christopherson's done movies and, and he'll, you know, have a special concert or something. But that song Sunday Morning Coming Down, it's just while I was writing the play and she's saying, you want me to, you know, have Saturday nights when they're negotiating the times chair who gets to visit the bar when. And she says, I go to church on Sunday morning and you know what it's like after a night at the bar to be in church. It's like a, that's just what I, I heard her saying. It's like a, you know, Christopherson song sung by Johnny Cash where you're hung over the next morning and it's Sunday morning coming down. So that's just how that wound up in there, you know. Uh, is, 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 is that song about being just absolutely hungover and miserable on Sunday morning, the day of the morning after. Okay. Been there. I have lived that song myself quite a few times. Uh, so you, you grew up in New York. Where in New York? Actually, I was born in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, in Leonia, New Jersey, like right over the bridge. Right. Uh, from Manhattan. I went to Sarah Lawrence College. I spent a couple of years in Europe, I came home, I lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Manhattan again. And then I, I actually had tenure at a community college on Long Island. And during my sabbatical year, uh, I came to Nashville and I'd already noticed that I seemed to be spending all my time on my vacation sort of uh, visiting Nashville. And when I wasn't in Nashville, I was demoing songs and planning which songs to demo. And so I sort of focused on it and I wound up coming here during that year. And I just ran away from home and I never went back. Except I do go back when plays of mine go up, and I, I feel more at home in the music community here, and I'm, I miss the playwriting community in New York, so in play the city. I mean, okay. Yeah. Uh, would you classify? I mean, I spent time upstate. I used to go to summer camp in like Wallkill, New Paltz area. Cool. Would you say you're a playwright in New York and a, music, and a uh, country song star in Nashville? I'm not a country song star anywhere. I, I felt like I had a community of playwrights in New York, and I still sort of touch base and, and, and go to the city when, especially when my full-length plays go up, um, you know, and, and I had to play up this summer. And, and uh, I mean, I tried to have a, a songwriting critique group in New York with mixed success, and, and I missed some sort of playwriting feedback, you know, critique groups that I had access to in New York down here. So there's not a lot of playwriting activity down there in Nashville. That seems odd. Um... There is some. I I uh, I'm not in with the Tennessee rep crowd, and that's the biggest game in town. And and um, I don't know. I've, I've I've heard rumblings that there's somebody's going to start a critique group, and and I'd I'd love to be a part of something like that if it starts up. I don't know enough people who write to put together a group like that. Okay. Well, if there's anybody out there in Nashville who's part of the playwriting scene, please give Judy a call. She wants to hang out with you. Um, Okay, so you've, how many CDs do you have? Let's let's switch over to uh, your your music writing. You've got a couple of CDs, right? That's right. I the first one is called Brooklyn Cowgirl because I'm I'm an unlikely person to be writing country songs, so I wanted people laughing with me. I thought I'd better sort of preempt their what skepticism. Makes, what makes you unlikely to write country songs? Um, I'm from an academic Jewish tone deaf family and just have this inexplicable <laughs> love of country music from New York. You know, I have no business liking this whole genre. But when I was a little kid, there was a country music station in New York. I think there may be another one now, not just serious, but for most of the time, for, for the intervening decades, there wasn't. But when I was a little kid, there was, and I just got into country music. Um, so that came out in 2005 and it took me until this year, 2015, to put out the Brooklyn Cowgirl Rides again, but that one is out now, um, and it's getting airplay in Europe, which I feel good about, and uh, and the first silly video is on YouTube, Country Girl, uh, and 
yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on, I, I don't expect to become a big country star. I co-write with some wonderful people. I co-write with artists sometimes. I write songs by myself, but I write them to pitch primarily to other people. But, you know, you, you do a demo and then you have the track and now they can change the key on the track and it still sounds good. And so just for fun, I, I, I put out my CD. Excellent. So 10 years, 10 years between CDs. How prolific are you as a, as a songwriter? Are you very, very picky about what you're going to put out? Or, I mean, not that you shouldn't be, but 10 years is a, I, is I, a while. I'm very prolific. It's a, the, the new one is, is a double album. It's 32 songs. Uh, wow. You know, I, you can't shut me up. And I, I have others like planned out. I, it, it costs a little money to put, to put out a CD and then it takes a while to, to record me singing it in a way that I think is fit to be released, you know, it's, sure. and, uh, yeah. and then there were some lean years after I gave up tenure and moved here and the recession hit and I was between full-time jobs for a while. So, you know, that'll do it. That sort of thing <laughs> definitely takes a hit on your, uh, creative career. So, uh, you have a song called drunk on one Corona. Correct. <laughs> Did you actually get drunk on one Corona? I did. I went to, a, I was in New York City and I went to an open mic night or some kind of some kind and I hadn't had dinner and there was a one drink minimum and I ordered a, I think it was a, just a Corona. It wasn't a Corona light, but I realized I was absolutely plastered in the middle of drinking this and I just thought this is so lame that I have to write a song about it. This is just pathetic, you know. So it's, it's sort of a heartbreak song and there are a lot of heartbreak songs about people who can hold their liquor, but then there are lots of lonely nerds in the wor world, and I felt they needed their own drinking heartbreak songs. So I've, I've, you know, provided this service. I've filled this need. Well, uh, the me thirty years ago would have thanked you profusely for that song. So uh, let's <laughs> let's get back to playwriting again. Uh, why did you start playwriting, and what was the first play you wrote, and what made you do it? Um, I come from a family where everyone sort of wrote and was expected to write. Uh, my uncle was a golden age of science fiction uh, writer. Um, my father was a cultural anthropologist, but he also sometimes uh, played around with fiction. My mother wrote both novels for adults and young adults, and both my brother and sister are writers. Um, and so there was sort of a sense that one should write. And besides something I wrote when I was a little kid, which is not a real thing when I, I wrote a play about a bunch of girls in a bunk at camp called rats. Cause there was, I guess a card game we played at summer camp called rats that I sort of, my father read and seemed surprised. He thought was pretty good. And that was when I was like 13 or 14. Uh, my first play that got produced, I wound up directing it. It was in 96. It's called uh, immaculate conception. And it's just four friends on the telephone, just sort of four downwardly mobile slackers in the, 90s, which was sort of a rotten time to be a young person in New York City where everyone was absolutely terrified of HIV and it was hard to date and, and nobody was, people were paying off their college loans and, and not getting good jobs and it was vaguely recession time. So it was just four friends who were sort of at whatever arrested state of development calling each other up and sort of isolated people and schmoozing on the phone and they'd sort of wander with their phone cords because back then phones still had cords. You know, in the space, even if they were a foot apart, they're not looking at each other because each one is in a separate space. And so that went up. And, and ever since then, I've been writing both full length and one act plays and getting getting things produced now and then. Nice. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> getting the productions is the hard part. So <laughs> you're uh, teaching literature and creative writing at this point? 
Um, I wish I could teach creative writing more. I don't have an MFA, so I'm lucky enough to be teaching at Vanderbilt right now. I teach in Jewish studies, sort of courses I make up, like Jewish science fiction. There's no such thing, but they let me teach it, and I sort of make it work. Uh, Jewish humor, and then I teach a Jewish songwriters course, which uh, they, they call American Jewish music, so people think it's going to be klezmer or religious stuff, and it's not. It's all just show tunes, and then, you know, Lou Reed and Billy Joel and Drake and whoever but uh, taking people mostly through the 20th century. But I also teach for the English department and I teach a drama lit class, which I like to teach a lot. Um, I teach a class on fiction and right now I'm teaching a poetry class for the first time. So I sort of had to give myself a course on poetry to really, you know, you have to teach something to take, you have to, the first time you teach something, you're basically taking the course. Um, but they, I don't, I only got to teach creative writing there once. It is one of my favorite things to teach. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of how I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in a position as a playwright or or a musician to give up the day job. Yep, I hear you. Uh, so you're doing that now, but you started out as a, uh, what I'm reading here, a politics and Latin American studies PhD. What were you part that's, that's, Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> kind of heavy. Um, you know, I, I won a Truman Scholarship while I was at Sarah Lawrence, and they kind of push you in a political science direction, and we're talking again a long time ago, and I wasn't crazy about the Reagan administration's policy in Central America. I didn't really care for what we were doing in Nicaragua and El Salvador. That's that's how old I am, and I was troubled when I sort of knew enough to know that not just Time Magazine and Newsweek, but the New York Times weren't really telling the truth about what we were doing in the Contra War, and they'd sort of say, you know, El Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala had a wonderful election, this little fledgling democracy, you know, and yeah. I'd sort of know yeah. that what they were saying wasn't true that you know, people had to vote, you know, and, and to get their signal stamped or they'd be killed. And it was sort of a glass, you know, box you drop your vote into and the soldier standing over you and he can see what you wrote. And I was naive enough to be upset that the times that I couldn't believe what I was reading the New York times. I mean, that's what a little wide eyed kid I was. So my dissertation, I, I think we're all, all wide eyed kids when it comes to that sort of thing. Right. So I, my, I, I couldn't really write about American media, though that was what concerned me the most was the Office of Public Diplomacy and that kind of thing. So I wrote about Nicaraguan media before, during and after the revolution. And everybody there writes poetry. So, you know, the, I was sort of interviewing people in the Chamorro family on the left and the right. But then each paper had its own literary supplement and there were all these interesting poets running around. So in some ways it was kind of literary, but it looks like I'm just a political scientist, and I am, and I'm still interested in that stuff, but had I gotten an MFA, I might get to teach creative writing more, so you know, it's all a trade-off, these things. Yeah, depends on which path you take at this particular point. You talk about waking up to the reality of uh, the situation in, in Latin America and Nicaragua, um, and I think a lot of Americans are in that same boat. We don't get the information we need. We don't look for the information that we should be looking for. Many of us are very busy trying to keep our own heads above water, which is one thing. And our knowledge of the rest of the world and, and historical human nature is not as not as good as it should be. How do you, I mean, what do you think we can do to remedy something like that? I mean, our awareness of what we hear on the news as opposed to how things are actually working out there. I, I think it's a trickier situation now, or it's certainly different. When I was studying this stuff, the idea was that America valued 
objectivity and our news media were professional and balanced and, and objective and we were trying to teach Latin American countries to have media that do the same thing. Now that we sort of deregulated the FCC and you can call anything a news show and now that we've gotten so balkanized and sort of polarized so that there are openly right-wing media and openly left-wing media, it, it's not the sort of the America of the professional, objective, cool reporter just reporting facts. It's, it's just, it's almost unrecognizable from what the ideal of American journalism was supposed to be when I was looking at this stuff. Do you think the ideal of American journalism ever really existed? I, I don't know, because as I said, in the 80s, when it was supposed to be so objective, I, I, I thought it wasn't, and it freaked me out. Um, on the other hand, I think maybe more people back then uh, tried for that ideal or paid lip service to that ideal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. more people were watching the same news shows and were sort of on the same page. Now people are in different universes, depending on whether they're watching MSNBC or Fox. And that reminds me of the situation in Nicaragua. We used to shake our heads over and say, oh, these poor, primitive Latin American people, when will they modernize and get our right. kind of media? Sure, of course. We don't have our kind of media anymore, you know. I'm wondering if we ever really did. I mean, it's, it's, I consider myself a historian and one of the things that, I don't know, maybe this is foolish of me and, and I'm sure it is at the very least naive, but after reading history books, trying to find out what actually happened, the light dawned on me that I had to actually look more at who was writing the book and what they wanted me to know and what they wanted me to believe than what was actually in the book, quote, uh, supposedly factual, right? That even right, no, I, that objectivity is a lofty goal, but I'm wondering if it's just too lofty for either historians or journalists to achieve. Um, I th you know, I think it was Napoleon who said history is written by the victors, you know, and, right. and they decide what the narrative is. But I, I see with modern media now, Casual, people casually distorting the facts, blurring things that we know are objective facts, casually lying. And, 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 and I see no line between reporting the news and editorializing. Every, every, every time the evening news is going to stop that piece on, on these media, both on the left and the right. And I, I think it's, I think Fox is more egregious, but that may reflect my bias. But, I, you know, I, 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 I worry just as, uh, certain people in Nicaragua worried about Nicaragua when I was studying that stuff, that if people can't talk to each other, they really live in different universes and really filter the facts through their narratives so completely that the person watching can't get a full sense of what's going on. Uh, I, 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 th I think it's a problem. I think with our media for years, after the quiz show scandals, the way the networks, they were legit and they should have their monopoly was uh, by having sort of responsible, serious, you know, journalism that Edward R. Arrow and Walter Cronkite and whoever, and, and really trying to uphold an, an idea of journalism that's, that's getting lost and the newspapers are disappearing. And so I worry a little bit about what's happening to American media. And it was never great. Again, I, I, I pursued a whole project partly out of just my being freaked out by what was wrong with it in the 80s. But, you know, they're in a headache, so. Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a problem that's going to take a long time to remedy. Okay, uh, one or two more quick questions, and I will let you get back to your real life. Uh, <laughs> you wrote a movie for Showtime, In the Time of the Butterflies, correct? 
I co-wrote it with my brother, who's a more established Hollywood writer. He also writes young adult books and, and other kinds of things. Um, it's based on a novel by Julia Alvarez. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that it's sort of a, a strong, I mean, it draws on my strengths. I'm both a writer and it has to do with Latin America and, and Fio and, and um, you know, the Dominican Republic was in some ways analogous to Somoza in Nicaragua. Uh, we did get rewritten, as happens in Hollywood, so I think some of the differentiation between the different sisters is about a bunch of sisters who stood up to the dictator Trujillo, um, and some of the humor, and some of the things that I liked about our draft are gone. So I would say to someone, you know, I'm proud of the credit, but if you want to get a sense of my ear for dialogue and me as a writer and do I have a sense of humor, uh, read one of my plays. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's just Hollywood. Sure, yeah. Okay, uh, Judy Class, thank you so very, very much for speaking with us, and thank you very much for Timeshare. We had a great time working with that, and uh, good luck with your songwriting and your playwriting and real life in general. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Judy. Bye-bye. Hey, if you want to hear what Judy's music sounds like, you can just surf on down to www.judy-class, that's K-L-A-S-S dot com. There's a listing of all her songs there. She's also on iTunes. So we're going to take off, and uh, we're going to leave you with one of her songs. This is called Drink It Over. Last night I was pouring on the whiskey and the gin. I tried to drown my sorrows. I didn't know that they could swim. I'm gone.